Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, July 28th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, National Editor. This week, we're coming to you from the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, and here are the numbers that mattered. 269 to 269, the perfectly plausible electoral college split that leads to a tiebreaker in the House. 30,000, the number of Hillary Clinton's deleted emails that Donald Trump would like Vladimir Putin to unearth. 0.56%, the share of a $142 million pot of gold that state Democratic parties got from the Clinton fundraising agreement. And 44, the number of minutes that Barack Obama spent taking down Trump and creating an avenue for Hillary. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Hello to my Philly crew, Ken Vogel. Yo. Hadas Gold. Hi. And senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Yo. So we've had another great week of questions from our listeners. Let's take one from Jeffrey out on the West Coast. Hello out there, Jeffrey. What's your question? Hi, guys. So I'm trying to figure out whether I'm more baffled by or more terrified by Trump's surge in the re- in the polls that was reported earlier this week, even after his flaming tire and or garbage fire of a convention last week. <laughs> For now, this information has been more baffling to me because while Romney lost in 2012 because he only won with white voters, these recent polls suggest that Trump is surging despite absolutely no indication that he's even attempting to reach outside that same group of white voters. So what gives? Should we just toss out our math-informed understanding of voter demographics from 2012 as a relic of a less insane time and one that has no application to the 2016 election? In other words, should I be less baffled and more terrified? Charlie? I think it's a great question, um, and it's one that I've heard a lot of people voice because, you know, when you, when you drill down into the numbers, when you talk to folks, you realize that Donald Trump has some serious problems uh, with some significant demographics, whether you're talking about Hispanics or college-educated women, African Americans, I mean, you can just go down the list. So how is he even close is the question that at least I often hear. And I think if you boil things down, uh, here's what's going on. Uh, broadly speaking, in, in recent presidential elections, Republicans, the Republican nominee typically carries about six out of 10 white voters. Romney, for example, won 59%. That was up from 55% for McCain. Uh, George W. Bush won 58% of white voters. and But the problem here that Republicans have is that white voters are a declining share of the electorate, and so they have a conundrum. The, what we're seeing this year, though, and I think the big difference is the difference-making uh, contingent or demographic group is white voters without a college degree. And uh, so basically we're talking about less educated white voters and they're going for Donald Trump in bigger numbers than we've seen in the past. Uh, In fact, by huge numbers. I recently saw a CNN poll, for example, uh, I think it's the most recent one, where Trump uh, 
had actually expanded his lead with those voters, you know, white voters who don't hold a college degree. He was up 51 to 31, 20 points. Now his lead is 62 to 23. That's 39. So he's gone from 20 points to 39 points. And that is just a huge gap. And I think it accounts for some of why he's doing well, because uh, white voters without a college degree is a fairly big uh, slice of the electorate. Awesome. Thank you so much, Charlie. And Jeffrey, thanks for your question. Thank you so much. Appreciate the answer. Thanks, Jeffrey. Bye. Bye Let's get to some data points. Charlie suggests 269 to 269. Let's look at the prospects of an electoral college tie. Coming out of two weeks of conventions, looking at a general election in which, frankly, this nation is divided 50-50 if you are to believe the polls. Tell me, Charlie, what would happen if the election day result is a tie? Well, when you see a race this close, you know, you begin to start seeing the stories and the discussions about what happens in the worst case horrible scenario where we end up at 269 to 269. And that might seem like it's uh, a prospect that could never happen, but in fact, it's happened twice in American history, not, you know, not recently, it happened in the 18th century. But if you play around with the maps and the electoral votes, you can get to a plausible 269 to 269 tie. Uh, there are actually several ways to get there. And uh, New York Times Upshot uh, did a nice map the other day of a totally plausible 269 to 269 scenario. And what's, uh, what's remarkable about that is, I mean, think about how polarized we are right now as a nation. And think about if we ran into that kind of situation where we were dead tied between Godzilla and King Kong, <laughs> Hillary Clinton and, and Donald which Trump. Which is which? Uh, I don't want to touch that one. Uh, <laughs> but if you're, you know, and you can build out your own map. There's there are sites that do it. Uh, 270towin.com, for example, is a very good one. And uh, you can find a number of different combinations that'll get you there. And what I find most fascinating about it, at least sort of gaming it out and speculating about, is what would happen next. Because if, if there is a tie, it gets thrown to the House of Representatives. And so can you imagine? <clears throat> Can you imagine the kind of uh, rancor that we would uh, see if that was the case? Because the House would suddenly uh, be the, the locus of, of all kinds of bitterness, even more bitterness than right now. And then you have the, the prospect of in the House, it, when they vote, it's by state delegation. It's not individual members. And so all of a sudden you add an additional layer of complexity uh, to the whole situation. And it's just a mess in the making if that happens. I mean, if we're playing the hypothetical game, first of all, in that instance, you would have uh, the Senate electing the vice president. So maybe some deal making, say, if Democrats take the Senate uh, and you have a divided, you have a divided legislature, one one chamber and one party, one chamber, the other possible Clinton striking Pence. of a deal. Right. <laughs> something like that. Uh, or or like Kane Pence or Pence Kane, you know, uh, but, what, you know, to, to take the hypothetical even further. What if you have a situation where it's like a 2000 situation where one state and there, you know, there's, there's a, a contest over one state uh, that is gridlocked and it goes to the Supreme Court, which is tied 4-4, uh, then you gotta wait for uh, one of the justices to die and then you'd have an, an, another president. What um. happens when we, what happens in that situation where there's no president who is in charge, like while they're deciding all this? 
I well, you would have the, the current president. The the current Obama president. would just stay. Yeah. So so uh, Sarah Silverman uh, would get her wish. This is the comedian who supported Bernie and then reluctantly came on and supported Hillary and actually appeared at the convention to kind of shame some of the Bernie dead enders. But last night during President Obama's speech, she tweeted, "Go Barry, four more years." And in fact, <laughs> I heard other people screaming in the hall, four more years and." Don't leave us. And so. best president ever. There right. was a lot of shouting on the a floor last night. A lot of Obama loves, so those folks would get their wish in this uh, hypothetical. <laughs> That's think, what, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that, that I think it reminds us that this would make Gore versus Bush look like patty cake. I mean, that's extraordinary. I can't even imagine, actually. But it is, it has been, what, 200 years since the House decided an election? Yeah, 1824 was the last time. It was Quincy Jackson, right? So and we're due. How do I Quincy know Quincy Adams. That's not bad, though. Damn. I know I'm pretty smart. I know. <laughs> You're not just pretty and smart. I'm pretty and smart, too. Um, let's talk about another number. It's 30,000. I love this one. Hadass suggested it. It's the number of Hillary Clinton emails that Donald Trump would like Vladimir Putin to find for him. This was an extraordinary moment this week when <coughs> Trump went... Um, public with his desire for a foreign government to hack into his opposition's email. Um, the rebuke was swift. It was bipartisan. Including even somewhat from within his own campaign. Yeah, tell me about the story. <laughs> well, I mean, so Donald Trump held that press conference in Florida. Um, and from what I understand, this press conference is actually almost a... Um, what's the compensation for all the reporters who had trudged down there because they had come down there supposed to be some kind of Hispanic meeting and that didn't work out and so he holds this big press conference trying you know wrest the news cycle away from Hillary Clinton's convention he very successfully does that but maybe slightly to his detriment although at this point who knows what's to Trump's detriment and what's not um, and in it he was talking about the the DNC hack and and Hillary Clinton's emails and he said that he would like for um, Russia to please go ahead and it would be really nice if they could go find it now his team is trying to parse words and say, oh, he wasn't calling them to hack it. He was just saying if they already have it, they should give it to the FBI. You know, there was, there was so much spinning that Right, the, and he wasn't saying that Barack Obama wasn't an American. <clears throat> it was other people Right, who were I mean, that's, it. it's a classic Trump thing. It's, I mean, it's so much spin that the Olympics next month are going to seem like nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really, you, you can parse it any way you want, but I thought actually Ashley Parker in the New York Times uh, did a good job characterizing this you know, rather starkly in her lead, saying that what he was doing was essentially urging a foreign adversary to conduct cyber espionage against a former Secretary of State. And, and that's what he was doing, no matter how he spun it. And that, that really, as you suggested, was, was extraordinary and drew rebukes within his own party, even on his own ticket almost. Mike Pence distanced himself from it. And I think that was a really interesting moment. I think we could end up seeing quite a bit more of that if Trump continues. Uh, to sort of speak extemporaneously and say some of this outrageous I mean, stuff, yeah. which is so anathema to like everything that Pence has done in his political career, which has been sort of more careful and thoughtful, even if you don't like some of the places that he has gone, he's done it deliberatively. That's the opposite of Trump. Yeah, and uh, this is going to be something that keeps up go coming, and I was just thinking what all of these members of Congress who um, are going to be approached by reporters constantly saying, do you support Russia? Uh, pretty much hacking the, 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 the presidential nominee, encouraging another country to hack into our system. But here's the thing, you know, his his supporters, I don't know if they if they care. I mean, I think that they see Hillary Clinton as such an awful person. I mean, they chant lock her up 
all the time that I think they say, you know, in their minds, anything that's necessary to get her out and to make her lose. This is, is really an important point that you're making here, Hadass. This might be, uh, from Washington's perspective, one of the biggest mistakes that Donald Trump has made. And he's made a lot of what we would consider mistakes. But it's now baked into his brand. He's the guy who says anything and nothing sticks. And, you know, we're talking about a general election with if Hillary Clinton had said that, the story would be completely different. She would be tumbling in the polls. People would be vicious in their takedowns of her on both sides. Donald Trump says it, and we're just numb to it almost. Now, this one might be a little bit different. You saw how quickly Paul Ryan came out and said, Russia needs to stay out of American politics. But does the public care? I think your point is exactly the right one to make, Hadass. No, and I don't think they care. And I think the only thing that we've actually seen that has stuck, and I reported on this a couple months ago, that in the focus groups, the most negative thing for Donald Trump was the Serge Kovaleski imitation of the disabled reporter. And we have seen Hillary Clinton and the Democrats use this a lot this week. They did a whole night where they really featured um, Hillary Clinton's work and the Democrats' work on the ADA. They showed videos about this. And Trump, Donald Trump still to this day has to come back and say, I wasn't making fun of him. I don't know him, blah, blah, blah. That seems to be one of the few things that in, in all of his comments about Mexicans, Muslims, all of that stuff, it is the potential mocking of a disabled reporter. It's the only thing that seems to stick, even more so than encouraging another country to commit you know, cyber espionage on us. If you go to the Merriam-Webster dictionary uh, website right now, it's merriam-webster.com, uh, they list the most searched words. The first one right now is malarkey, which was taken from <laughs> Joe Biden's speech last night. But number three is the word treason. I mean, treason is a word we don't throw around very lightly. We rarely even use it. And clearly, a lot of people don't even know what it means. It's almost, you know, has these 18th or, or you know, 19th or 18th century connotations. Uh, and the idea that that word is being bandied about and that people are reacting to what uh, his statement and referring to it as treason really goes to show you just how politically radioactive that statement was and just how much damage it could cause, cause to his campaign. And, and, and to Kristen's point about the you know, to some extent, like double standard, the way that we deal with his outrageous statements versus versus Clinton's more measured statements, but sometimes, you know, careless behavior in the words of the FBI. I mean, Hillary is, has been accused of treason through, you know, many times over the past, uh, you know, year or years. And uh, and it's it's interesting to see behavior that, that probably comes closer to the actual definition, uh, drawing sort of mixed reactions. What was the effect, Hadass, in the media? We, this, this story hit, what was it, on Tuesday? This story hit on Tuesday? Wasn't it yesterday? Oh my gosh, I totally <laughs> lost control. I have no idea what the yeah, days of the week are after two weeks ago. of uh, convention. So the story hit yesterday. What was the coverage of it? What, did the DNC get as much coverage? Did they lose coverage because of this? How, how, what was that balance like? I think during those hours during the day, it was all Donald Trump, 100%. And you know, I was watching the cable news coverage, and it was as though there was no Democratic convention going on. Um, it was because it was just so explosive. By the evening, that had switched, obviously, once you had this lineup of you know, Biden and Obama and all of that. Um, and it was, and it was, and everybody on TV was mentioning that contrast. They were saying, you know, this is such a different um, scene, what we saw tonight versus what we saw this morning with Donald Trump. Um, what was also really interesting and what I was watching is how people's headlines changed because um, of the pushback against whether he was calling them to hack or quote unquote find, you know, you know, miraculously come upon 
some emails and release them or whether they already had them. The New York Times, for example, their breaking news alert said that Donald Trump had called on Russia to hack Hillary Clinton. And then within uh, half an hour, their online headline had changed just to say, you know, uh, Donald Trump encourages um, Russia to find more emails or oh, something like that. <clears throat> um, There's also a really stark contrast, you know, the, the, and I think the news coverage reflects this, between the conventions. I mean, this convention here in Philadelphia, the Democrats, is such a smoothly choreographed affair. Obviously, the, you know, the Sanders people raised a ruckus and, uh, you know, stole the narrative for at least uh, parts of different news cycles, but the convention itself went off really smoothly and was a slickly produced affair, you know, versus on the other side with the, like, Ted Cruz uh, non-endorsement, just blowing things up. I mean... Or the, plagiarist, plagiarist Right, right, speeches. the plagiarized speeches. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, like, Democrats, they lose, they, they, like, lose some bandwidth in the media because it's all going as expected. And the only time that they get a little bit of, like, uh, you know, explosive coverage is over the Sanders stuff. So the, the, you know, GOP convention, I think, dominated the headlines much more, both because the guy who could potentially steal the headlines, Trump, was a part of it, and because there were all these sort of unchoreographed uh, uh, plot lines, and, and uh, this week, not so much. So it allows someone like Trump, you know, to come in and, and steal the news cycle. The explosiveness of the issue uh, was real to me, at least, in, in the responses, because uh, as everybody here knows, you know, in, in this modern era, in, in the way politics operates right now, almost every response is canned, prefabricated, taken off the shelf, and it's just like ping pong, all these news events, where I... Uh, find huge news. The thing that indicates to me it's going to be huge news is when no one has a response immediately. And right out of the gate, after that statement was made, there was no response. There was quiet because no one knew how to react and Democrats had to sit down and uh, get in a room and figure out, wow. And this was true of the Clinton campaign as well. They had to take some time to figure out how do you respond to something like this? And that's always a gr an indicator of a grave incident or something that's really big, so big that it was unexpected and no one even has a planned response. All right, let's get to another data point. One half of 1%, that's how much state Democratic parties got to keep of the $142 million raised with Hillary Clinton's joint fundraising committee. Ken, what is going on here? Yeah, we uh, looked at the FEC filings and found uh, that this joint fundraising committee, the Hillary Victory Fund, was raising a ton of money. It's sort of one of the strengths of her finance operation. And it was able to raise all this money because it included so many state parties. At, at one point, there were uh, 32 of the state parties were, were, were members of this. Now it's up to 40. Well, what that means is that they can accept a larger check because they, uh, within the sort of contribution limit of this bigger committee, have all the contribution limits of the state parties, $10,000 each. So they're able to accept these huge checks, hundreds of thousands of dollars from major donors but they're supposed to transfer it out to the participating committees, which include all these state parties. Well, they were doing that, but then almost immediately we found this money was being sent from the state parties to the DNC. So it was really essentially helping Hillary and Hillary's allies at the DNC subsidize their operation as opposed to helping these state parties. Now, the reason why this is important is because Clinton sort of justified the big checks that she was raising at, you know, really extravagant fundraisers like at George Clooney's house, for instance, by saying, oh, no, 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 it's not for me. It's for the state parties. 
FEC records suggest otherwise. And when we revealed this initially uh, back in May, this infuriated not just some of the state party folks who, who thought that they were going to get more money. It also infuriated campaign finance watchdogs who thought that it was a way for the party and the campaign to circumvent contribution limits. And it really pissed off Bernie Sanders allies because they thought that this was a, yet another way that the DNC sort of had its thumb on the scale for Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders during their contested primary. I think it was just one more piece of evidence that Bernie Sanders was right. The DNC was totally, completely, madly, deeply in the tank for Hillary Clinton during the campaign. And ultimately, we see from the WikiLeaks uh, that uh, he was right, and it you know, ultimately cost Debbie Wasserman Schultz her job. You know, it's pretty fascinating when you think about it, the way she sort of dismissed Bernie Sanders and, and didn't think very highly of him or his operation. And I can't help but wonder, uh, you know, how what their relationship was like in the House together. Uh, you know, there wasn't a ton of overlap, but you can almost imagine that somebody like uh, DWS didn't really think very highly or didn't have any time for somebody like Bernie Sanders, who was dismissed by many in Washington as sort of this irrelevant backbencher who was just sort of off, you know, uh, complaining about different things. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz was this up and coming rising star who had no time for Bernie Sanders, uh, a long shot campaign. And ultimately, it caused her downfall. And in some ways, he really got the last laugh. I mean, the, the Sanders folks who I talked to on background were, were like really tickled by this. They, they were pleased. I mean, first of all, the, the, the WikiLeaks in particular shows the hypersensitivity of the DNC and of the Clinton campaign to this perception, but it also proves that there was something there. That, that it they wasn't were, just a perception. Right, that it wasn't just a perception. And so that for them, this was sort of an aha moment where they were able to point to this stuff. And it wasn't just about, you know, uh, tr planting bad stories about Bernie Sanders and questioning whether they should, you know, invoke his atheism or his, his level of observance as a Jew. I mean, they had a, an extensive back and forth, the DNC and the Clinton campaign and their lawyers about this very topic, about the Joint Fundraising Committee and about our stories on the uh, Joint Fundraising Committee and how they should approach our stories and how they should spin other reporters seeking to follow our stories. It actually uh, the, the, it got so bad, there was an interesting nugget. After we first wrote about this back in May, the DNC wanted to rebut it, and so they were looking for state party chairs who they could potentially put on a Sunday show to, to shoot down our story and say, no, we're very pleased with our participation in the Joint Fundraising Committee, even though we're not getting a lot of money in our actual bank account. And they proposed the Indiana state chair, one of the one of the DNC staffers did, but then another DNC staffer said, "Well, how do we know this isn't one of the people who is secretly upset about this and complaining <laughs> off the record to Politico if we get him on TV and he's spouting the line in the Politico story as opposed to our line? It would look really bad." Oh God, what a cluster! Here's another number: forty-four. That's how many minutes the 44th president of the United States spoke during the Democratic National Convention. Hadass, how did Barack Obama's speech play? I think Obama's speech um, came off very well. Uh, it, it's a lot, I heard a lot of people this morning calling it one of his top five speeches of his political career, in addition to the 2004 Democratic National Convention speech, which really put him on the map, as well as his speech in uh, after the Sandy Hook tragedy. Uh, and, you know, it was classic Obama. He was clearly energized. He clearly um, was taking the moment to 
uh, try to really contrast the Democrats and Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump and what Donald Trump stands for. And you could tell there was a lot of urgency, I think, in his voice. Although I would like to say that he, um, some people were criticizing him for, for suggesting that, you know, almost almost acting in a way that like Donald Trump does not represent America. He's not going to win. Um, some people, some Democrats I spoke to were kind of hoping that he would really, really put the sense of urgency in that like this could spell the end of the world. Don't let that happen. And Obama took the much more positive, happy route. What do you think, Charlie? I thought it was pretty terrific. I think it will uh, go down as one of his uh, best speeches ever, as Hadass mentioned, not quite at the uh, elevation of the 2004 speech, but uh, pretty high up there. And what I what was really striking about it to me was something that I mentioned to you earlier this morning, Kristen, which was I loved the distillation of American values. And what I mean by that is that what he was saying about American values would have been right at play in place with the founding fathers, the way they talked about uh, this country. Uh, or the, the country they envisioned. And it was also really forward-looking because it was almost like a 21st century expression of those values uh, as reimagined these days. Well, he also was taking what sounded like Republican statements and, spe- and like lines that you would have normally heard in a Republican speech, um, but it was at the Democratic speech. He quoted Reagan, and Donald Trump did not quote Reagan. Um, you could tell that he was kind of giving a, a signal to those Republicans who might be super wary of Donald Trump and say, hey, we're not so bad. It was more than a signal. I mean, at the (laughs) beginning of the speech, he said, you know, this guy is not a conservative. Right. And you could hear conservatives around the country. You could hear them saying, "Uh, he's right about that. I mean, one of the most interesting things that I saw on the second screen experience was Eric Erickson tweeting, you know, I started today thinking Donald Trump might win. And then I just watched this speech and I can't tell you how angry I am at my party. Right. Look, Barack Obama is a great speech giver, and the Democrats in the audience and around the country just ate it up. They loved it. But I think your point, Hadass, at the start of this was exactly the right one. Like He had a message for Democrats, and he tried to have a message for Republicans, but the truth is like the vision of the current state of the United States of America is not shared uniformly by Americans. I thought the uh, Reagan analogy that Hadass made was really apt here because I thought uh, of Ronald Reagan a lot as I watched that speech last night, and I don't often think that uh, you know they they share a lot in common. Um, when you look, Reagan is one of my uh, famous or favorite speech givers. If you look at his some of his most famous work, whether it's A Time for Choosing or his challenge speech at the 1976 convention, he is just fantastic. The guy just explodes off the screen. He's that good. And for a time, as I watched Obama last night, he really reminded me of some of those qualities. And it may have been the way he expressed his vision of America, because that's what's always leaped out about Ronald Reagan to me, the way he expressed uh, his his feelings about America and the way that he expressed uh, his commitment to uh, Republican ideals. And I felt that uh, I got a real vibe of that from Obama last night. Yeah, but you also thought he was snarky. <laughs> uh, I did think he was a little too snarky. I think there's a real danger for Democrats, particularly in an election where Donald Trump's path to victory is with white working class or white working class voters who uh, ha- don't have college education. There's a real danger to taking this 
high where the Democrats were highly educated. We have tons of credentials from good schools and we're here to save you from your stupidity argument. Like that is deadly for the Democratic Party. And I think there were some elements of that in what he was saying. I thought it was clever, the line about Donald Trump's not a plan guy. He's also not a facts guy. It was funny. But once you take that too far, then you begin to demean an entire class of voters that already feels really cynical, really frustrated, and really feels like the system is rigged against them. At the same time, though, I remember comparing the ends of both speeches to, of Trump's speech and Obama's speech. And I, I bet they did this on purpose. Trump's speech was a lot of eyes. It was, I will make, you know, you know, America oh, safe again. And I'm, I'm almost, I mean, this, I was reading this like late last night and then Obama was a lot of you, like you make America great. You do this. And also just like, this is a small thing. There's a lot of we's, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. A lot of we's. I mean, I mean, Trump, also used a lot of we's, but it was a lot more of like, I am the one, you know, which which Obama mentioned, uh, saying like, you know, there, this America is not a place where one savior comes and, you know, fixes everything. We do it all together. Uh, and one thing I did, I also noticed, which is just, I think, very indicative of how different this is. We all talked about how at the RNC, you know, Trump never mentioned abortion or Israel or like things like that, that, you know, people are used to hearing in Republican speeches. Obama ended his speech with the God bless America, God bless everybody. Donald Trump didn't mention God at all at the end yeah, of the speech. Yeah, but Democrats opened their convention with not a single American flag on the stage. That is very true. <laughs> all right, final segment. What was your favorite convention moment, Hadass? Uh, I, this conventions are like, um, it feels like summer camp slash, um, you're like youth group conventions you would go to if, say, when you were growing up. Everybody's here. You can like grab sources left and right. What the hell are you talking about? Youth group events. What is this? Well, when I was in high school, I was in a youth group. We'd do like these national conventions where it'd be like 3,000 teenagers. Oh, you were one of those. I was one of those. But, um, I think uh, there's been like the fun ones. Like last night I went to Pat's and Gino's at like three in the morning and, um, Josh Gad from Book of Mormon was there, as was a Congressman Payne from New Jersey was there as well. Um, everybody was together along with the drunkards getting, some of them were the drunkards getting, uh, getting cheesesteaks, which was cool. Um, but probably one of my favorite moments reporting-wise was, um, as a media reporter, I don't usually get to do stakeouts like uh, some of my colleagues do on the Hill or, or you know, presidential campaigns running around. So much of my reporting is done over the phone, over email, over Twitter direct messaging. Um, But when the Fox stuff broke, I camped out in front of the Fox News workspace in the um, RNC convention media filing center and was just catching people as they were walking in and out. And it was exciting and getting told by security that we weren't allowed to be there and they were trying to kick us out, trying to tell us we weren't allowed to talk to Fox employees. And we got to push back and be like, who says, you know, this is a filing center. We're all allowed to be here. We're all reporters. Um, And then getting to work with my team, I was catching their quotes, um, saving them in my phone and just emailing them to the team up in New York who was transcribing them and writing them so that we were the first ones to have a lot of these reactions. So that was really cool. Awesome. Charlie. Um, I would say I have two that are probably tied as, fa- as favorite moments. Uh, one of them is, is like Hadassah's moment, uh, actually, at Pat's uh, Stakes. <laughs> now, as you guys know, I, I'm a, uh, you know, a, a Philadelphian born here. And uh, as a kid, uh, one of the highlights, one of my favorite things ever was going to Phillies games or uh, Eagles games and going with my father late at night when the games would be over and going to Pat's or Gino's and getting a cheesesteak. I mean, it was the greatest thing ever. It was like Christmas night. And so it was really neat to go with, I don't know if you guys know this, you know, Kristen and I went there together when we did uh, the little Nerdcast video, the, the, the two minute video. We went there uh, one morning and filmed it uh, eating a cheesesteak and Kristen actually had 
her first cheesesteak and had to concede uh, that it was excellent. It was a delicacy. And uh, I mean, it's not a fairy tale. Those things are good. They are fantastic. <laughs> Wait, did you so guys do Pats or Gino's? Pats. We went to Pats. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Gino's is, is really outstanding. It was 1030 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I, cheesesteak. I would have tried them both, to be honest. Uh, the other favorite moment is, and this is maybe a little cheesy, a little corny, but like I've been to a bunch cheesy. of conventions. Uh, I've been. Uh, whiz. Yeah, whiz provolone. <laughs> Uh, I've been to a bunch of conventions, and one thing that I love is uh, it makes me feel great to be an American. To be in the line, the, the security lines obviously suck. You know, you're getting wanded, and you're you know you're sweating, <laughs> and like it takes an hour to get in. But it's so cool to be around the delegates. Um, how excited they are going into the arena at night. You know, they're dressed in all sorts of crazy outfits, and uh, not all of them. You know, some it's of a them political comic con. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. But they're so excited about it, and it just reminds me of how important uh, politics can be, and how meaningful it is. In so many people's lives and I really respect a lot of them you know they're shelling out a lot of money taking a lot of time out of their lives because they're committed to a cause and this is true on the Republican and Democratic side and I love seeing that it always makes me feel good about America you know what I mean you guys know I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm really sappy about that kind of stuff I'm you know I'm, I love the flag I'm you know uh, if I if I could I'd wear the you know the these colors don't run t-shirt why you know? don't you, I you know. totally could. yeah I'm sure I have like a cutoff version of it you know cut off sleeves at home <laughs> but like I, I love that sort of stuff and show so guns, yeah Karen. I know gun show uh, but no it's really exciting to be in that line around those people and, and the sort of vibe that you get going into the convention Ken well my favorite moment is, is not really a moment it's sort of like a, a dynamic uh, that you get to experience as a journalist covering uh, these conventions with your colleagues in Politico obviously devoting a lot of firepower bringing a lot of journalists to both conventions and being able to sort of work as a team with my colleagues, you know, and we, we like fan out all over the floor during the big speeches and are like sending each other nuggets about like protesters or what people are chanting or what delegation is, is raising a ruckus because they felt Bernie didn't get his due or who's raising the TPP stuff. Uh, you know, uh, that, that sort of camaraderie I think is, is, uh, is really motivating. And, uh, as far as like not like sideline stuff that isn't actually at the convention, I had the chance after uh, staking out a big donor reception uh, in Center City to swing by Shibe Vintage Sports. I too am a diehard Philadelphia fan, Philadelphia born and bred. And this place, Shy Vintage Sports at uh, 137 South 13th Street, just amazing like vintage Philadelphia Phillies hats and like cool like throwback shirts and whatnot and I spent $120 there and probably could have spent like $230 if I didn't uh, have to get on a bus back to the uh, back to the arena to cover the night's events I spent $80 at Shibe Sports it is fantastic I spent no dollars at Shibe Sports huge mistake Kristen huge I don't know what my favorite part is. I feel sappy. I feel um, I agree with all the things that Ken said about our team. I think we've done extremely well these last two weeks, both in Cleveland and in here. Um, I love the story of Grayson coming to the Politico newsroom here and being stunned that we were going to ask him a question. I thought that was brilliant. Um, Maybe my favorite personal moment is our colleague Shane Goldmacher taking pity upon me, looking at me and realizing I hadn't properly eaten in a very long time and going and finding me some vegetables. So Vegetables? That, I, I was really hungry for vegetables. There's only so much here? cheese whiz you can eat. <laughs> right? I'm kind of a small human. 
All right, that's it for us. Time to say goodbye. Say goodbye, Ken. Hey, fun time as always. Tadas. Bye, Philly. Charlie. Bye, Christy. Thank you for listening. See you next week. 